Welcome to the public morality. Understanding history has a lot to do with understanding the perspective of the individuals involved. Unless all perspectives are accounted for, the historical record is incomplete. Author Ethel Morgan Smith shines a new light on several unsung heroes of the civil rights era, many ordinary citizens working behind the scenes to make an impact on their communities in her new book, Path to Grace, Reimagining the Civil Rights Movement. Ethel Morgan Smith, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let us begin by having you explain what inspired you to write uh, Path to Grace. Oh, during the, I guess the mid-2020 through the mid-20s, a lot of um, African-American, well, white too, civil rights icons started to die. And then the question becomes, wow, what happens when these people die? So I decided I wanted to do something about it. So I started talking to people. And I was interested in people that we didn't know about, you know, not the famous ones, not the ones we hear every year during Black History Month, but the people who were behind the scenes. And some of them were at the elbows of icons. Um, for an example, I interviewed uh, Susan Perry Cole, who was one of Shirley Chis Congresswoman uh, Shirley Chisholm's uh, congressional aides. And I, I just got a world of information. Every time I talked to someone, there was someone else I was supposed to talk to. So my list just kept growing and growing and growing. So one of the things I realized that I had to do was talk to the older people first, because from my first book, um, they were the ones who died first. Um, I started off uh, from Whence Cometh My Help. I met a woman who was 82. And I was so fortunate she lived to be 100 years old and she had her right mind. So this happened, but this time it didn't happen quite like that. I lost some people who were in their late 50s. I lost two good people. I had interviewed one once um, that I couldn't continue with. But anyway, I interviewed 11 people in the book, but I must have interviewed maybe 100 people in real life. And I just started trying to put their stories together. Um, so after I did that, I decided that it wasn't complete. The book wasn't complete. So I thought, well, I'm a child of the civil rights movement. So then what I decided to do was to add uh, brief narratives of my childhood growing up in the Black Belt of Alabama before each chapter. And that seemed to work for me. That, that worked well, I think. Well, that actually leads into my next question. I want you to say more about that because you take this literary approach where you conduct these interviews, then you have these brief narratives about yourself, but then, then there are times within the book when a person would make a point, you would then draw into your own experience. So just talk about what sort of led you to that literary approach. I, I thought it was quite effective. Oh, well, thank you. Well, what led me to it is I was trying to, you know, you do an interview with a person and it's not the old days where he said, she said, da, 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 da. You, that's considered too raw. So then I had to, after I did the interview, 
for a person, then I had it transcribed, and then I had to write it. Uh, so it would be interesting to people. So I did that. And then when I decided to add my stories in it, some of them, some of the pieces that I had had been written before, but they worked really well, uh, I think. And I think that's a good way to write. As, like I said, especially if you're talking about an era that you grew up, that I grew up in. It was an era that I remember. I remember when my parents went to vote for the first time. I remember when Lurleen Wallace died. And I, I'm from the same uh, county as George Wallace was from. So our people knew his people and some of the church ladies worked for them. And I remember all these things. And I said, that too is part of the civil rights movement. That too is part of my memory. Um, the first one that I do is called book notes because people find it incredibly hard to believe that we didn't get new books, textbooks until, I don't know, maybe I was in the ninth or 10th grade. Uh, but our parents had to go and get the books out of the garbage cans of the white school and redo those books, clean them up. And those became my textbooks. But later on, um, after the Civil Rights uh, Act passed, passed um, George Wallace had to do something for Black people. And what he did for Black people was to give us uh, new textbooks. And that was the first time I saw a new textbook. I was in the ninth or 10th grade in high school. Um, so that's how these stories came to lean on each other or, you know, present them in a way that I had some memory of it. When I talked to Mr. Canty, uh, the gentleman who worked for five presidents, and as he was talking, I one of the things I've learned in terms of interviewing is that the story belongs to the person who's telling the story. Uh, a lot of people couldn't believe, for an example, that he was very fond of Richard Nixon. Uh, and he cried twice when I talked to him, once about his wife, whom he had lost a couple of years earlier. And then he cried about Nixon. And he said to me, um, well, we weren't political. We just wanted to keep our jobs. And Nixon was good to us. He gave us the highest raises of any pre of any of the presidents. And he had worked from Johnson to uh, until Reagan, through Reagan. And then he said he knew our names. He told us we, he gave us things and he told us we could call on. So that's a different Nixon than the Nixon that we know from the Watergate and from the seventies. So that's another thing that my, what you do when you tell a personal story, it has something different that you haven't perhaps read in the newspaper or the history books or seen on television. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in trying to capture that spirit of these people, of these mm -hmm. witnesses. As you write, as you say, you had over a hundred interviews and, and you condense it down to 12. Um, when you look at those 12 interviews, what in your view ties them together? What ties them together? I think what ties them together is the time period. Uh, most of the people had done some work uh, with or toward the civil rights movement, whether it was one uh, editor told me one time that my book did not 
did not, he didn't recognize it as a civil rights movement because nobody was marching. So I corrected him and I said, you know, the most important work of the civil rights movement was the people who were working behind the scenes. So we have this vision that if people weren't out marching, uh, protesting, then they weren't part of the civil rights movement. Well, he was not interested in my book and that worked out well because I wasn't interested in him publishing my book because he didn't have the attitude that I thought that I needed or that I was trying to present uh, to the public. And after the book was published, I did get a note from him saying, oh, this was my loss for sure. I didn't uh, grasp the whole idea of yours, meaning it was my fault because he couldn't grasp the whole idea that I was trying to get across. It could have been his fault. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's very interesting because, you know, history, um, unless you have all the perspectives accounted for, um, the historical record's incomplete. So if you, like, as you were saying, he said it, there was no one marching, so it was a civil rights movement. Yeah. But the people marching had to eat. So that means someone had to cook. Um, people needed a place to stay if they were in town. That's exactly right. <laughs> and is that not part of the narrative? Is that, that not part, is of the- part of the narrative? <laughs> but, you know, this is the problem with, let's say, America. Just take for an example how many of these statutes we have, we've had up and many have been taken down, right? And most people have not thought about them except some people have. There has never been and never will be a statute of Hitler in Germany because you know why? They know their history. We don't. Mm -hmm. We don't. We we just accept what has been fed to us over the uh, years and assume that whoever fed it to us knew what they were feeding us. They knew what they were feeding us, but they didn't think that there would come a day that we would examine who these people are. And when that day came, we weren't happy with it. And these statues started to come down. They started to come down as well as they should. Um, you know, they never should have been put up. They, they were put up after World War II, not at the time that some of these people lived, like Andrew uh, Johnson, um, Andrew Jackson, I mean. But Andrew Johnson was an asshole too. But anyway, um, so th- this, this shows us what this reflects is how little we know about history, our own history. Our own history has been whitewashed. Our own history has been shelved, shelved somewhere. Uh, Black African-Americans have been embarrassed for whatever reason. Uh, it, it seems to me white people ought to be embarrassed by the history. But since they have done a good job of not displaying that history, and whether textbooks, whether movies, whatever, they don't. And something is very wrong with that. That narrative does not work for me um, in, term, in, in terms of our real history. And teaching African-American lit is, was just, I never thought it was going to be such a challenge. I thought, I thought I would be embraced for offering them truth, right? But instead, I got information like this. Oh my God, I hate that class. All she does is talk about race. 
And it's like, well, it's an African-American lit class. What do you want me to do? Sing and dance for you? So those are the kinds of experiences that I've had. It wasn't until I spent a year in Germany as a Fulbright scholar that I felt comfortable teaching the slave narratives. Um, the slave narratives got so complicated for me to teach and at my university anyway, at West Virginia University in Morgantown, the white students would, I didn't do it. My parents didn't do it. The white students would be embarrassed and just wish you'd go away. Once I was in Germany where they started to teach the Holocaust when students are in the third grade. So they don't have the issues that they have issues, but they don't have the same kind of issues that we do about history. And I'm sure there's some German history that's been um, washed away, but nothing like American history has been. And it continues to do so. You know, you, you sometimes you hear a congressperson or a senator making a mistake and they go, well, we're standing for the coloreds. And it's like, we haven't used that language in 50 years or 60 years. But somehow or another, there's this lack of knowledge about it. That doesn't happen in other countries uh, as often as it happened in our country. I want to uh, talk about, we don't, we, obviously I wish we had more time. We don't have the time to talk about everybody in the book, but I want to talk about a few people, at least some of the ones that, that jumped out at me. How about that? Um, so who are Dr. Sandra Matthew Ford and Henry Michael Ford? Talk about them for a minute. Oh, okay. So, um, Sandra, Dr. Sandra Ford is a childhood friend of mine. We grew up together. And when I was making a decision about where to move, they encouraged me to look at Birmingham after I, re I, I had a buyout from uh, West Virginia. And I started coming through Birmingham and reading information about it. And I reconnected with uh, Dr. Ford. We both went to Alabama A&M together. And I got really involved in the work that they were doing. Uh, they were going, and they still do, they've done it for 20 years. They go, they have a medical mobile unit and they go into the poorest areas, the Black Belt, the Western part of the state, every first weekend of the month. And that includes G's Bend, Selma. Um, it includes Greene County, um, Aliceville, just the Western part is the poorest part of it. And I was intrigued by them doing the work single-handedly, uh, meaning in my in, in the academy world, the first thing you do is sort of write a grant for something, you know, if you if you're trying to do something. But they had never done that. Uh, they were dependent on um, the communities they worked in. They were uh, UAB medical students helped them. They just had so much belief in what they were doing and it was the right thing to do. So this is a husband and a wife couple. Uh, they've been married for 40 years and they've been doing this for about the same time. And I just had so, it, it, it's, it, you know, when you grew up with someone and you meet them several years later and you go, oh my God, I grew up with this person. I had no idea he or she would become this person, you know? So I felt that. So I've um, been involved with them since I've been in Birmingham. Even before I moved here, I became involved with them. 
And I've supported them in writing grants. Like I said, if you're from the academy, you know a lot about writing grant proposals and that kind of thing. And that has helped them. And then when COVID came, it, it changed the narrative. You know, we had to do something else. But at the same time, doing the work that the very poor, the very un, the people who have no resources needed. So they needed a lot of help uh, during uh, COVID. In fact, Dr. Um, Ford's office, her office uh, in Birmingham, here in Birmingham, the whole office got COVID at some point uh, because they were going out working for people. This is pre-vaccination. Uh, so that was very hard. Um, but then, every you know, they're fine. Everybody is fine and they continue to do the work. Um, but I have so much respect for them. On their own, they decided what they saw a need and they could fill it. And they did. I'm going to tie something to that story. Um you offer something in that chapter I thought was very poignant. And it was about the during the time the the, the Fords, they, they hadn't married yet. They, they weren't dating. I thought it was a great story. I thought it, I thought it tied to what they eventually started doing as, as, a, married, as a couple. He said that um, Michael asked Sandra if she knew someone who would kill a Klan member. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you take that story from there. I, I just thought it was a great story. Well, I thought it was a worthy story. And yes, so they were dating. And one day in the gym, uh, Sandra uh, Henry asked his then his wife-to-be if she knew anyone uh, who could kill a Klan member for him because he had been attacked when he was young and he was beaten pretty badly. So the wife-to-be said, this is not how we're going to live our lives. You know, this is not going to work. So they made a decision that they would, as they say, turn it over to God. So they both went to, went to theology school and decided to let God handle it, as they said. And this is how they came up with the work that they're doing. This is one of the reasons. Um, you cannot go around killing people. Uh even though you wish you could sometimes. Anyway, that's a bad sentence. Um, but he had been beaten pretty badly, Henry had, when he was a younger man. And of course, that there's no way you could forget that. And they decided that they would turn something negative into something positive. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, you know, I brought it up. And here's why I brought it up. Um because it's interesting because you're telling your story, you're telling the story of others. And, you know, it's interesting because it seems to me there are so many stories like that, right. that, that African-Americans are carrying around some unresolved pain. That's right. And, and, and oftentimes that unresolved pain reflects itself in so many ways that many of us don't understand. Why is Uncle Joe like that? Why is Big Mama like that? And, and so you sort of reveal this story of this unresolved pain in that they did something with it that turned out in a positive way. I mean, that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you discuss they it. They chose it. That they chose to do something good. They, they chose to make it into a positive as, as opposed to killing somebody hurting somebody they chose to do something else and like i said 
in their words, they say, we decided to turn it over to God. And but I before before we turn this, um, before I go to my next person I want to talk about, um, talk about um, the area where the Fords do their work. I think Dr. Ford referred to it as Alabama's third world. Talk about that area as well. I don't want to leave it without discussing that. Well, yes. Okay, for an example, one of the places we go to is is uh, G's uh, Bend. And it, it, people know G's Bend today because of the quilting, right? But G's Bend had long ago existed. And if there hadn't been a G's Bend, we wouldn't have a Selma. You know, we know Selma from history. So for an example, the workers, the civil rights workers would come to Selma, work during the day, and at night, they would take the ferry. G's Bend, G um, is the name of the last uh, enslaver. And Ben is the Ben in the, in the Alabama River. So the ferry, the ferry saved lives because once they were over there, no one could get to them. But one of the things that happened was the Klan burned the ferry down. It took those people 40 years to rebuild that ferry. When I heard that story, it, it sounded like a story from an undeveloped nation. You know, it didn't sound like a story of America coming from America uh, kind of thing. So Sandra said, so I refer to her as Sandra. Dr. Ford said they did two things. They prayed and they prayed and they fast, they did a 40 day, 40 night fast. And things started to happen for them. People started to come out, people got involved in the project that they were working on. And if you think about, I was at G's Band one Christmas with them. The unemployment rate there is 90%. Uh, there was a some kind of mill and of course it, got shut down and went to China. So it left that. And when you're there, you really do feel like you're in another world. You you can you can smell the raw sewage. You you can see the pop you can just see the poverty. You don't have to talk to anybody. So at Christmas time, they do a parade and we take children presents. Each family gets a turkey, each child gets a coat, hat, gloves shoes, those kinds of things. But the thing that's so interesting about these people, they are so filled with gratitude. They don't they don't know what anger is. Even the women who did those quilts and still, you mean the you mean the recipients, right? You're talking about the recipients? Uh, you're talking about the people who live there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yes, yes. Uh, so for an example, um Arnett is the name of the man who uh, marketed the quilts and all of this. And also came books and mugs. And he went around to all these. Uh, I was in Boston at the time. They came there. And these were people who had never been on a plane before. Most of them had never been out of the state of Alabama before. So they were so thankful. They were just filled with gratitude. But at the same time, they weren't getting the amounts of money that they should have been getting from this project. Um, but they they just, like I said, most of them had never been out of the state of Alabama. 
And most of them had never been on a plane before. Most of them had never done this before. And they were just filled with gratitude. So it's a perspective. We as an outsider see that as, well, they should have been treated better in a, in a monetary kind of way. But they weren't. But they were just so grateful that someone had given them the attention that they got, had, had gotten and was doing things for them. So perspective is a big deal. You, you know, we see it one way and they see it another way. No, no one else had given them any attention. And they've been, these quilts, the patterns, are, you know, they've been studied and they come directly from Africa. You know, that's an amazing uh that's an amazing kind of thing to happen. Um, but someone made lots of money off of it. But as typical America, the people who did the work didn't make a lot of money off of it. Mm -hmm. um, mo moving quickly, um, who is Constance Curry? Constance Curry um, was the first white woman to be on the executive board of SNCC. She was Julian Bond's best friend. They have been best friends forever. Um, Constance Curry worked in Mississippi when the school desegregation started. They wanted white women because white women would uh, not present a threat. They would not be killed like a black person would be killed. So Constance Curry was deeply involved in the civil rights movement. Um, she worked for the city of Atlanta and then she went to law school. I think when she was, I thought she was 40 when she went to law school, but it turned out she was 50. But she didn't go to law school to practice law. She went to law school so she could have access to these, this pipeline of young boys from the third grade to prison, sixth grade to prison. So she wanted access to that so she could write about it. Uh, so Connie Curry is, is, is who, she, who she's now known as. We lost her. Uh, she died in 2020. And I had interviewed her. I've known her most of my life. I had interviewed her in 2018, I believe it was. And she still lived in the same house. And it just brought like so many memories. But she was so depressed. Uh, her cat of 21 years had died. And then she had lost, she had a beach house in um, South Carolina and everybody went there. Uh, Pat Conroy, the mayor, Andy Young. I went there, everybody went there. And you didn't just write your name and your address, you wrote about your experience. So one of the dreams that Connie and I always had was that we would write a book about the people who had come to the beach house. But um, Mother Nature had other things in store for the beach house. It wasn't to be. So that's who Connie Curry is. She, she, um, Connie Curry's parents came directly from uh, Northern, uh, Northern Ireland and because they knew that it was going to be trouble. So she comes from a family of immediate immigrants and they moved from there to New Jersey and then from New Jersey to uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. And then she moved to Atlanta and went to school at Agnes Scott College. Uh, so that's who Connie Curry is. I just did a talk on her in Mississippi at the museum there, the African-American uh, 
and History Museum, African American and History Museum. And they requested that I do that chapter because they mm-hmm. all knew her. Mm-hmm. And here's a story about Connie Curry. Her first book is called Civil Rights, S-I-L-V-E-R, Rights. And it's this family, uh, the Carter family, they had 12 children. And immediately they enrolled them in what was previously known as all white schools. And she was terrified for them. So she and some of the other white women went to help to make this transition as smooth as it could have been. They didn't want another Arkansas, as they called it. And um, the Carter family, she wrote about them. So those 12 kids all got into schools. They all graduated from Ole Miss. And that sounds like progress. But the problem is they all paid a price for it. The mother and the father lost their job. The father was beaten. Their house was bombed. Um, the mother moved to Atlanta. So Connie helped her to find work. The father stayed and took care of the children. He wasn't well. He had a heart attack later on and died. So in theory, that was progress. But God, the price they paid for that mm. progress. So that's what that book, Civil Rights, is about, the Carter family. Let me just say to our listeners that um, you referenced your talk at uh, um, recently on, on Connie, that um, if anyone's interested, that um, interview is on YouTube, and you can just go right on. And I, I, I watched it the other day. It's, it's well worth the time. Okay. Um, you, you begin your chapter on Gloria Naylor with a quote. And the, here's the quote. A, a, a writer will write, a singer will sing, a dancer will dance. You have no choice. It's either you create or you explode. Now, before we discuss who Gloria Naylor was, given your career as a writer and academic, are you concerned that our current notions of education um, sort of that are presented by the dominant culture sort of push against this Naylor's quote that, you know, if you, if you don't have a choice, you'll explode. And people who are creative more and more are being demanded that they swallow that creativity for something else. Oh, absolutely. For something that's not the truth, which is our problem in the first place. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? You don't solve a problem by adding on to the problem. You solve a problem by talking to people, by doing some research to see who has done what. Um, one of the stories that I tell is a, a West Virginia woman whose grandfather um created this machine that would help in the coal mines to get it out faster. And he did all the right things. He invented this machine, rather. He went to a lawyer, and the lawyer stole it from him. I can't tell you how many texts, how many emails I've gotten from people, black people, saying the same thing happened to somebody in their family. So my stories are telling the stories, not just of these few people that I'm telling the story of, is telling the story of Blacks and whites, but most blacks, how they've been treated in America. So that was important to me to get to, to tell some truth about that. And Mr. Franklin, 
they even started calling the machine the Franklin machine because he invented it. But the lawyers stole it. And I was able to get a copy of the patent uh, to include in the book. But that story is not just an isolated story. That story is very much part of the American history with uh, black and white relationships, the stealing. You know, if you think about it, okay, slavery came, it turned into something else, Jim Crow turned into something else, turned into something else. But if you think about all that's been stolen, all that's been stolen from black people in this country, it's pretty monumental and it's pretty sad and it's awful and it's ugly. But we've always been in denial about it because the white people have said that's not so. So who gets to tell, who gets to say what's true and what's not? The people who get to write the books gets to tell they're true and other people follow it along. Hmm. We want simple stories. We want Abe Lincoln was honest. He never told a lot. We want George Washington to uh, cut down the cherry tree. We want those kind of stories. We don't want complicated. There is nothing more complicated than life and the United States of America. Uh, so it's amazing to me what we want versus what we have. And we keep pushing back, but that's not going to last. People who have banned books have always been not the good people. It's always been the bad guys. It doesn't work. It's been tried and tried before. It will not work. Hmm. Now, now tell us who Gloria Naylor was and your connection to her. Uh, my connection to Gloria Naylor, I have a, a sisterhood group of women, and we have been meeting every year for 30 years. I haven't been meeting that long, but 25 years I've been meeting with them. And it was started with Nikki Giovanni and Joanne Gavin. And we gather once a year at in Wintergreen, uh, Virginia. As a I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you in a minute to talk about the Wintergreen women specifically. So you, okay, we're, okay. We're, so so gonna... I met Gloria. Gloria was invited to uh, Wintergreen, and she came. And uh, Virginia Fowler decided that she was going to get us to. Callaloo uh, had given her permission to focus on. Um, one issue of Callaloo would be on Gloria Naylor. And uh, Fowler asked me to, would I interview her? And I had never met her, but I had taught her books, all of them. I knew them well. So I thought I could do the interview. So I did the interview with her. Uh, and she's another one of the people who passed before the book was published. Um, yes, she was, she was not well and not happy in America. Uh, she was very unhappy. Uh, with race relations and that kind of thing. She's mostly known for her book, uh, Women of Brewster Place. Uh, that was her first novel that Oprah Winfrey turned into a film that was highly praised. And then she went on to write Lyndon Hills. Uh, she wrote Men of Brewster Place. Uh, she wrote Mama Day. Um, all of her books were pretty were pretty well successful, but she's mostly known for that first one. She was working at a uh, at the Hilton Hotel as a receptionist, and so she was working uh, at night. So she would write uh, when things were quiet, and she took her manuscript. This would never happen today. She took her manuscript uh, 
to, I'm, I don't remember which publisher uh, she took it to and asked the secretary to read it for her. And the secretary read it for her and told her to finish it and she would give it to an editor. And she did. And it, it won the, it was called the Columbus Award or the American Book Award. We now call it the uh, National Book Award. It won that award and, and, and became a movie. So, I'm la- I'm laughing because the first thing anybody would want to know now is how many how many um, clicks do you get on your social media page, <laughs> and should I talk uh, should I talk to you or not? It's it's um, absolutely uh, <laughs> well. It was so bad. Remember when Oprah Winfrey first started doing her um, n- not the uh, show, not the book show, but when she started doing these books, she would choose. It got so bad that everybody writes now because the technology allows everybody to write. You know, can you imagine James Baldwin, Pat Conrad writing on brown paper and turning right. it into an editor? That would never work today. Everybody's okay. book today. Okay. I don't know if you've gotten one of these, um, but could you imagine? I just got an email the other day that told me, you know, Byron, it basically said, Byron, with all the work that you're doing, AI can write your book for you. Can you imagine James Baldwin getting an email like that? <laughs> no, not at all. Or Pat Conroy. Or exactly. Exactly. Um, real um, uh, oh, tell us about specifically about the Wintergreen women, because that's all, that was also in that chapter. And I thought that was an important piece for you to lift up. It, it is important. And the Wintergreen women just got a grant from um oh my God. Anyway, it'll come to me. Um it's scholars and artists. That's how it started together. When Nikki Giovanni first got started teaching at Virginia Tech, she was invited to go to James Madison University, and that's why she met Joanne Gavin. And they went out, and then they went out with their students. So they said, oh, let's do this all the time. So as time went on, other women joined the group. You know, there are a lot of Black um, colleges and universities in the Virginia area in um, close by areas, um, people from Alabama. I think I was the long, I was the furthest away, uh, but I was at Virginia Tech teaching with Nikki when I first uh, got involved with Wintergreen. And we stay a weekend. It used to be Memorial Weekend, but we've changed it since it's a holiday. And what we do, we talk about our work. Uh, we cook, we eat, we go for walks, we have fun. And we talk about what's going on in the world. We talk about tennis. You know, we just, we just, it's a gathering and everyone looks forward to it. The Mellon Foundation, that's where we just got some money from. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were impressed that this group of people have been meeting for 30 years. And we didn't meet doing uh, COVID, but we did uh, virtual. We did a Zoom, just like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And we met again this past May, and it's the first time we had met since um, since uh, before COVID. Yeah, so that was very special. Yes. Mm. And who are some of the people that have attended that group? There's some people there that I think some names that people would recognize. Oh, yeah, there are lots of people. Gloria Naylor, uh, I just mentioned. Uh, Valerie Gray Ward. Uh, Nikki Giovanni is a regular. Uh, Ruby D. we've had her. Uh, Rita Dove. Uh, Trudia Harris. Uh, Trudy Harris is just is the newest uh, inductee to the Alabama Writers Hall of Fame. Uh, we've had Opal Moore, who teaches at Spelman College, uh, or she did. Uh, 
just so I'm trying to think of other people. Didn't you have Maya Angelou? Didn't you have Tony? Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. Tony never came, but she was always with us in spirit. Okay. Um, Maya actually came uh, to a few. Um, we had Hermes uh, Pinson, who's at uh, William and Mary. Carla mm -hmm. uh, Holloway uh, was that what that Duke University was that Duke? She's retired now. Um, the the list just goes on and on in terms of academics, a lot of scholars, and then the writers uh, became part of it, and and uh, other artists. Now newer people have come in, younger people, which of course we need younger people to come in. Um, that is interesting to do too, because we are at least two general the younger people who are coming in you know, probably old enough to be our young enough to be our children so that's interesting to see their perspective on the world uh today of uh, you know we keep thinking oh when i was that age i wasn't nearly that smart you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so that's what the green uh, yeah it, it, mm -hmm. it and it, it's it's just a beautiful spot I always it, it reminds me of being in Vermont, if, if that makes any sense to you, uh, a resort area that's up in the mountains of, of Virginia. Yeah. Beginning in chapter four, which is the Constance Curry chapter, you quote Julian Bond. Yes. And and the quote is the civil rights movement didn't begin in Montgomery, which was the bus boycott, and it didn't end in the 1960s. It continues to this very moment. Given um, your primary, your larger goal was to um, critique a many unsung heroes of the civil rights movement, does Gloria Naylor fall into that category as someone who's part of that extended civil rights legacy because she was born in about 1950? Yeah, she is. She, she, she. That's exactly right. She, she, she is. She, she often that chapter is called Two Ways of Seeing the World." And just like James Baldwin, she says if she had been born a little bit later, she would have been born in the South. Uh, but what happened is when they moved from Mississippi uh, to New York, they took the South with them. They took the culture, the food, the clothes, the, you know, uh, the language. Uh, they took it with them. And as a result, you get this combination of born one place, but from another place. Uh, if that makes any sense. But Gloria Naylor, yes, all of her work. Lyndon Hill is a very important book. It talks about what happens when affirmative action first came to corporate America and they were looking for Black people and how Black people responded to it. And we don't hear much about that. When, when we hear about affirmative action today, the media has painted it as uh, with a Black face. And of course, we know that the people who don't talk about affirmative action are the ones who benefited the most. And it's very simple. You just look around you and you see the progress with white women has outnumbered, has out, yeah, outnumbered the progress of Black people. And not only that, I had an issue in my book. I was talking about this character, the, the bus driver, the woman. Mm -hmm. And I say... Um, if you got in trouble on the bus, you got in trouble at home because you had insulted a, a, a Southern Christian colored woman in a high position. So the 
editor wanted to change it to say woman of color. And I go, no, that that language wasn't around then. And I said, um, and being called a colored woman for women of that era was a sign of respect. You know, they could have called them auntie, nigger, whatever. But the, if my mother called herself a colored woman, my grandmother, all the women in my family. In fact, they were insulted by the term black. So I had to do this education thing for this publisher. I said, um, by the way, African-Americans don't like the term uh, people of color because you know what it represents to us? That one more group of people have come to this country and got in line in front of us, whether they are Asian, whether they are African, whether they are whatever. So that's what I think of when I hear the term people of color. That's just dumping it all together. You don't have to do anything special. You you know what I mean? Because whatever works for one works for the other. But yet and still, if you're African-American who's been over here longer than anyone other than Native Americans, you once again are behind the line. Does that make any sense? Makes perfect sense. Um, let's talk about uh, your friend and colleague, um, uh, Nikki Giovanni. Let's pretend that there's someone, well, not to pretend, I'm sure there is, there's someone listening who has no idea that name. So explain to them who Nikki Giovanni is, please. And then I'm going to get to having some more questions about her, but, but go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. I'll explain who she is and I'll explain my relationship to her. How's that? That sounds good to me. Okay, very good. Um, I went to, I was 37 years old when I went to graduate school at Holland University in Roanoke, Virginia. And um, one day I'm unpacking and I hear this voice and I go, oh, that's a familiar voice. I couldn't identify it. And when the um, program ended, the uh, commentator said, we'd like to thank Professor, poet Professor Nikki Giovanni, who teaches at Virginia Tech, which was 40 miles from where I was had moved to graduate school. And I go, oh my God, because you know, in, in college, we all knew her because she was one of the women, Sonia Sanchez, some of the others, who became, who took over the Black arts movement in terms of gender issues, uh, you know. They became the stars of that. So Nikki Giovanni just turned 80 years old. She has been famous since she was in her 20s when she first wrote her book, Germani, which is an autobiography. Uh, that's what they were called back then. Today, we would call them a memoir. When she was 26 years old, James Baldwin invited her to come to London to do an interview with him. And what he was doing, in my mind, was passing the torch uh, to her. And not that they always agreed upon things, or always, but they agreed upon that they agreed on one thing that the world has got to get better for black people. And it has got to get better because we make it better. And um, so Nikki was right there, you know, in that crowd. Uh, you know, you, you think of Angela Davis, you think of Alice Walker, uh, Sonia Sanchez. Uh, Toni Morrison started to write later in her life. She, was, she spent a lot of time as a book editor at Random House before she actually started publishing novels. Uh, Maya Angelou, all of these women, uh, 
were writing. Maya was writing about her life. Nikki was writing about the life of the Black arts movement and and the sexism and the sexism that goes on that we don't often think about or don't want to think about, certainly don't want to talk about it. And, that, and that's something that Shirley Chisholm uh, had to deal with a lot. She said being a female was much harder for her than being a Black person. Uh, so we don't like to talk about the sexism in the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, for an example, none of the Black, one member of the Black caucus, uh, Ron Dellums, I think, that was, my congress, that was my congressman, Ron, Ron Dellums. Yep. He stayed until the very end, and then he switched to the other side. The problem with that is the person they chose didn't win. And, and, and we knew Shirley Chisholm was not going to win. But as she said, someone had to be first. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Someone had to be first. And he did. And when he left her, uh, Sue said, Sue is the uh, legislative aide that I interviewed. She said, well, I guess he did the best he could. She said she never heard her say anything bad about anyone. And that's pretty spectacular if if you think about it. But I'm giving another example with Shirley Chisholm here. So the, the Congress people decided they would put her on the uh, Agriculture Committee, knowing well, full well, that she represented Brooklyn. She represented an urban area. But she decided to do something with it. And, and even today, we don't think about or recognize how this country got food stamps, how this country got WIC. Uh, it got it because of Shirley Chisholm. Senator Buchanan from Alabama said in a meeting, well, I don't think we knew who we were dealing with when uh, <laughs> with, with Shirley Chisholm, but somehow or another, they became friends. So one of the things that I pick up from your book, I mean, you're, you're telling the story about uh, these selected individuals with uh, that you've interviewed you you've wrapped them around your own personal memoir but there's also the subtext that it, it, not just this story but all of these stories it you're telling the story how you have been this lifelong learner because everyone you have encountered you were learning something from them i have you say more about that oh that's that's absolutely true i i have learned you know i grew up in a one of those uh, schoolhouse next to the church kind of thing uh, in, in my early years, we had these teachers. There weren't many resources. So let's let's take let's go back a minute to Sandra Ford, okay? Her mother had five sisters, and they all taught us. they so they would come to Montgomery on the weekend. This is where they lived. That's where they lived. And then they would come to Barbara County during the week and teach us. But the thing is, they never looked down on us. They were always, there was always this expectation that we would do well. And we would do well. And they were always there. So when I think of students now and what school must be like, even though we didn't have so many, re we didn't have the resources 
that a lot of schools have today. But we had these people telling us, we can do uh, we can do well. We can go to school. You're smart as anybody else. When we were going to be in a spelling bee, when we were going to do this, you know, I grew up in a town of less than 2,000 people. So it could have easily have gone the other way, pretty much like it's gone today, you know, where when, when Black people couldn't get educations, we valued it. And now when we got education, we don't value it. That's a general kind of statement. But we would just scrub. We were just these teachers. They believed in us. They helped us to believe in ourselves. It helped us to say, oh, well, I can do that. Uh, Mrs. Johnson told me that she went to school with someone who did this. Well, surely I can do this, you know. So that's one of the things that I, I was always interested in learning uh, because I came from that kind of environment. Um, that our teachers were always vested in us. And I don't know if, I don't think it was just me. I would have no, noticed if it was just me, but it was all of our students. There were students who couldn't, their parents were, let's say, sharecroppers, okay? So they couldn't come to school until the crops were done. But when they came to school, they were behind. But these teachers, they would keep them after school and, and, and try to help them to catch up and give them a ride home and talk to their parents about it. You know, in some situations, that would not have happened. Those kids would have just dropped out of school eventually. But that didn't happen with us. We, we just had these marvelous teachers who were vested in us. The title of the book, Path to Grace, reimagining the civil rights movement. Our author, our guest for the hour has been its author, Ethel Morgan Smith. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the public around there. Really enjoyed being in dialogue with you. Oh, well, thank you. It's good to talk to you too. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.